Hello. Welcome out to Wildly Curious. Yes. A couple days late, a couple dollars short. Yes. We filmed an episode. You just spilled on yourself. Oh my God. I spilled all over myself. You I thought it was just spilled on yourself. I thought I was being so smart by like, um, no, no, this <laughs> sentence does not end with anything because whatever you did was not smart. Oh my God. There's like Coke all over me now. Okay. It's not that bad. You're being dramatic. I am a little dramatic. And you are also a habitual spiller. I am a habitual spiller, but fortunately I'm also a habitual big boob person. So it catches everything. You have a shelf. I have a shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, welcome out to Wild Aquarius. I am Dr. Corinne Vota, otherwise known as Corinne. That how I have no I have no comment. Apparently you do. No, I don't because I didn't say a comment. Your lack of comment is a comment. No, it's not. Okay. Um big news. Big, 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 big news. What's the news? Hey, we're going to Disney World tomorrow. Yes. And how are you feeling about that? And do you want to tell them why we're going to Disney World tomorrow? I still have a lot of stuff to do. So <laughs> my excitement will be on the plane. <laughs> it's been a it's been a very crazy, hectic month. So it's literally like one day at a time kind of for me. And so when I'm able to be on the plane and know, okay, I'm leaving the chaos or the stress or whatever behind that, you know is currently occupying my brain, then I'll be able to be like, ah, yeah, let's go travel. Are you one of those people that have to like plan days in advance for a trip? What do you mean? Like you have to pack and you have to think about all the things you have to do and like trips stress you out. Are you, are you genuinely asking me this question? Like you don't know? Well, I know that you pack a couple days early, but I don't know. This is actually the first time I've ever heard that you're stressed about taking a trip. I'm not stressed about taking a trip necessarily. And yes, I do start packing days early because my brain starts thinking about it earlier because you it just has to. That's what it does. Okay. Um, but no, it's this is just a really crazy month and there's a lot going on. And so it's just been hard to be present in the moment with excitement about something that's not here yet so that's kind of where i'm at and even like you know today we're kind of checking off things as we go as the day goes on and you know it's just not i'm not my brain is not in trip mode yet my brain is still in oh i have other responsibilities or commitments or things i need to do all right well did you tell them why we're going no do you want to tell them why we're going no. <laughs> Do you want me to tell them why we're going? I don't know. It's someone's birthday. Yeah, someone. Someone. It's it's one of our birthdays. Someone. I just it feels weird to be like, oh. I don't know. I don't want to be like You're going to Disney World for your birthday. What's wrong? I know, with but that? I don't want to be like I hate when it's like there's a tension on me that it's like, oh, I just have like a big ego. I want it to be about me. Wow. I don't know. Do we want to get into that? No. Dr. Vota can be in if you need her to be. No. Okay. We won't get into that then. Okay. Um, That's good. uh, This is going to be the opposite of a political episode. Um, But I got to tell you, I I am feeling a little little apprehensive about going to Florida. I think that I had that moment and 
I don't know if I'm just too busy right now to care. Yeah. Um, Because again, like my my brain is still on the things. It's shifted now, at least to things I have to do in order to go on the trip. Okay. You know, um, prepping dog food, leaving dog care instructions, finishing packing, making sure the house is clean, stuff like that. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I know I had that moment a couple weeks ago where I was like, oh god, we're going to Florida. Um, and as I was packing one of my mini backpacks, the one that I was like, oh, this will be, you know, the smallest because it's going to be hot. So, like, I don't even know if I'm going to use the mini backpack. But, like, if we want to have waters, that's a convenient way to carry around a water bottle. Yeah. So, um, you know, I picked the smallest one, which happens to be the rainbow one. And I was like, <laughs> oh, all right. I guess I'm just going to see what happens. Well, I think what's nice about... <sighs> at least what feels safe about it is aside from the airport and airports are generally, they're, ne- they're neither affirming nor not affirming. They're just chaos. Um, well, an argument can be made for TSA, but we'll save that for another day. Um, but Florida, the Disney, the Disney world bubble is kind of a bubble. Yes. It's the same thing that we experience when we go to Austin where, and I mean, I think the better examples when we go to Disney Paris. Yeah. You know, looking at like where in the city we were like, eh, but then in Paris we were like, hey. Yeah, it's, it's still that concept though of there can be islands of safety, islands of, of, of inclusion. And I think that's the kind of the thing that we felt in Austin too, where around the city in Austin, it's super queer. Like it's super queer friendly. And then as soon as you get, I mean, Austin's kind of big, so I can't say as soon as you get 15, 20 minutes out, but as soon as you get like 30 or 40 minutes out, you realize you're in Texas again. And And we all know about Texas. Texas is a tricky spot to be in. And I've always wondered about that, too, because so uh, we watch a lot of HGTV. It's a thing we do. And there's a couple people, um, big fans of Nate and Jeremiah. One of us is a Alice and Victoria super fan. I'm not a super fan, but you like her stuff too. I like her work. Yeah. She's, she seems cool, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. Um, big fans, interestingly enough, and this may, this may come out of left field, but um, Ben and Aaron Napier, the whole hometown thing. Yeah. Like, I... They have to. I, I. I don't. I don't know this. I don't. I don't know this. But maybe they're the one. One of the people that are like good Christians who genuinely like love everyone and accept everyone and just recognize everyone's trying to do their best. But I mean, if you look at them, they definitely seem like a very. Um, I don't know. It's 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 hard to break out of the stereotype with. A white couple that's that's faith oriented in Mississippi and not small make, town, small Mississippi. town, and not make some assumptions. But there's something about them where they're just gen- they just genuine awesomeness seems to pour through them. Um, and that actually led me to think about we were watching um, we watched a show the other night and there's a there's a couple called um, they're the people who do dream houses in like a hundred days, one hundred day dream house, hundred day dream house. And it's um, Brian and Mika. Klein, Brian and Klein Mika. Klein Schmidt. Klein Schmidt. Klein Schmidt. Klein. Well, I can look it up. I mean, it's kind of now that I think about it, it's kind of a German name. Not that German's bad. In fact, well, no, but that probably comes from Brian. Yeah, I would, I would, I would imagine that comes from Brian. 
and what was interesting about them, um, they don't have the same appeal to us. They're cool. They're, they're cool. Like we follow them on Instagram. There's like, they're, they're just not the kind of people we would have hung out with, um, in our lives, just a little too much, you know, going to the river, partying, drinking kind of, kind of vibe, which Klein, is rad. Klein Schmidt. Klein Schmidt. <clears throat> I looked up another Brian and Mika, but it wasn't Brian and Mika because I typed Mika wrong. So, and that's one of those two. Wait, out. why would we not be their friends? Well, not, not be their friends, but like they definitely seem like the people that would go out to the lake and party it up with their buds and drink beers, Do like they? walking around. I don't get that vibe from them. I get the vibe from her. I mean, she definitely seems like the more exciting one. She is the more exciting one. But I don't, I mean, I don't get that vibe. So that's your own e- e- either, vibe. Either, either way, we watched, um, we were watching their, their show and their, their, their finale last year was in, they're, they're out of Florida. And that's kind of where I started thinking about this was um, their finale last year was an interracial gay couple. Now, I think maybe we should pause for a second and okay. talk about the elephant in the room. I don't see an elephant. This this show aired what April of 2022? April of 2022. And we redid our kitchen. And you know, in the process of redoing our kitchen, we picked out and by we, I mean Corinne picked out a countertop. I was I did. very proud of that countertop. Yes have not seen this show up until I had never I had never actually seen this show at the time I picked out our countertop so last week you watched this episode of this show and lo and behold there's our countertop yeah <laughs> there is our countertop so and you know someone was feeling very proud about like hey we got this countertop but uh they had it first so and because that show aired in April, they had that countertop a long time ago. So our countertop's probably technically out of date. It's like come and gone as far as style's concerned. I'm not sure stone goes out of date. I feel like that's actually one of those things that's automatically timeless. I don't know about that, but I'm just saying they had it first. So continue talking about the show, the episode. I argue I am the first people. You are the first people in Colorado to have that. I don't know that. That's probably stupid. Probably tons of people have it. Mm-hmm. But none of them on TV. Well, if it's not on TV, it didn't happen. That's not how that works. Okay. So anyways, they, um, they're out of Florida and they do, do mostly Florida shows shows. And they did an interracial gay couple for their finale. Though I think if you don't know the couple, it's worth saying that they are an interracial couple. Which is interesting. Which to was me. a light bulb moment for you the other day where you were like, oh yeah, they are an interracial couple. It, yeah, that's what was kind of curious. Like I, I when I was watching their show, um, I thought I, I was really impressed by them. I was really impressed by them. They decided the finale of their show was going to be an interracial gay couple in Florida during the middle of the don't say gay, during the middle of a lot of that kind of stuff that was going on so mad props to them but yeah so i decided you were out of town when i watched that episode Mm -hmm. and and uh when you came back i decided we'll we'll rewatch it and it's true that halfway through that episode i was like oh snap they're an interracial couple i it didn't even dawn on me and i'm not gonna say i don't see color because i think that's a horrible thing to say um I see in value color and I see in value difference. And for some reason, it just never clicked to me because they just, they were, 
I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why either. More research on that, on my topic. But either way, um, it was Florida. And it was Florida. And here was a gay couple that was happy to be there. I just, I, I don't know. I have to wonder, like, is it as big of a deal as you're making it that they had a diverse couple on there? Well, I think... I think an argument can be made, and we've seen this, where HGTV has a history of being white, cisgender, heterocentric. Um, yeah, I, I think they can't. Arg- I, I think we can't argue that. And I think- yeah, but is it? You're not coming from the place of oh, this is good that HGTV is doing this. You're coming from the place of, oh, this is a show out of Florida, and it's good that they're doing this in this show out of Florida. I think maybe I am emphasizing that point, but either way, my takeaway from the entire experience was um, people exist in these places that I might be scared to go to or I might be worried to go to. And last year I did a uh, road trip through the South and where did you go? Oh, I went many places. Cause the, I feel like the South is very broad. Well, I hit Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia, f- tip of Florida, Oh, I didn't know you made it all the way to Florida. Yeah, the tip there on the bottom by yeah. Alabama. Yeah. And then up through Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. No, I'd argue I hit the South. Okay. I didn't think that you hit as much I as you came, did. I even came back through Kentucky and Illinois on the way back. Okay. Anyways, I did a road trip. And one of the highlights of that trip was meeting people in Little Rock. Um, there was an event the night I was going to be there. And so I found some queer people um, that were having a get together. And I said, oh, I would love to tag along. And as I talked to them, um, it was so interesting because they they felt confident to be out in public. They felt confident walking around wearing, wearing pride paraphernalia, colors, and at the same time, half of the people I talked to said, well, I can't be out at work. That's just, that's just a step too far. But in their minds, they were out and living authentically um, because they were allowed to exist, even if they weren't out to everyone there. Little Rock had a standard of affirming that is different than a standard of affirming in other parts of the country. And it kind of stuck out to me that these people were we're happy, even though they're in a place that was not by national or international standards, well, national standards, at least, um, was is an unaffirming, unsafe place to be. Well, this is what I think about that. Two things. The first thing is you can go anywhere. And if you don't live there or frequent that place enough, you don't know what it's like in the same way that someone who lives there. True. So they know what, you know, the boundaries kind of are to stay in or stay out of when it comes to like their level of comfortability. Right. Whereas like 
you know, we don't live there. So if we were to go, you know, based on what we hear in the media and in the news and, you know, political climate and all that stuff, like we are getting a broad overarching of like what the state is yeah. without necessarily knowing, you know, about the specific places that we might be going or, you know, we know this is how the government in that particular state feels, but we don't necessarily know, you know, how all the locals react and how we yeah. would be perceived. So there's a huge difference, I think, between, you know, people being able to know where they are in their community and environment and then versus being a traveler who you don't necessarily know. And as a traveler, because you don't know, you have to be more cautious. So that was like my first thought. I, I think and I think you're 100 percent right. And I think. This is, I think this is relatable to people who don't fall within the queer community as well. And what I mean by that is I grew up in a town um, called La Habra. It was in North Orange County. Um, most people in Orange County don't know where that city is. Uh, it borders Whittier and it's much more Los Angeles than it is uh, Orange County. And I knew the streets I wasn't, I'm not going to say not allowed to go down, but um, there were parts of towns where you went and there's parts of towns you didn't go. Yeah. And it's that same, it's that same concept of a local knows, hey, you don't go down Ward Street <laughs> off, off of. Right. Well, and I think, you know, when we, because your youngest has talked about, you know, wanting to go to Japan and it's so incredibly foreign for us that unless we had a local or someone who has frequented so many times. Showing us around. Or... Yeah, the thought of going is so daunting because we wouldn't even know how to interact, how to get around, you know, what customs we may be accidentally breaking because we just don't know. And, you know, when you're trying to figure out a new place, you make even not worse decisions, but you're more inclined to make mistakes, yeah. even with things that you know, yeah. you know. And so I think when as you're talking about this, like that huge contrast of you know, talking about like this country we've never been to, yeah. you know, really kind of stands out. Yeah. And that's totally true. I think everywhere we've traveled, we traveled together or me before us, um, has always been very Westernized. Um, language may not be the same, but the concept of cultures and customs are generally the same. Um, except in Paris, they don't wear shorts in the summer. <laughs> I don't understand that. I mean, but that's not the, that's not the point, but that's, but, and I think we've like hit that point. I want to talk about the other thing though. My other thought was I would venture that probably most of the people you talked to hadn't ventured very far outside of the state. If yes. so, outside of the South. Yes. And how do you know what you're missing until you know what you're missing? And so for them, even though, you know, let's, I don't know where Alabama ranks or Florida or any of these rank on like the, you know, LGBT friendliness scale. But even if they rank really low, they may not necessarily know what it's like to be in that environment where, you know, a different state would rank higher. So like, what would it be like to be in New York or in yeah. California where you're I think there's just a lot more of kind of like diversity built in. There's a, or even Austin, like Austin, I feel like was a very good example of there's lots of like rainbows and, yeah. and queer stuff everywhere. Um, but if you've never been to that environment, how, 
how do you know what you're missing? Yeah, you don't have that perspective, the context of... Right, and again, it's like, you know, the idea of we don't know what we're traveling to. We only know what we heard. And it's similar to them. They know what they've heard of what other states are doing. But they don't necessarily... They haven't experienced it. And so it would be hard, I think, so for them, to truly yeah. know. For them, they're like, yeah, this is absolutely affirming. I'm allowed to be out outside of my house. Yeah. But not at work. But they don't know that that's not normal. That's not they typical. They might. But I think when you're only given so much, you're grateful for what you're given. Yeah. And because they may not have had the ability to experience what it's like to be out at work... They don't have the maybe the same perspective of how um, oppressive it can feel. Yeah. Like you don't know that until you do it. And then you're like, oh, shit, like this actually doesn't feel good. And I thought it was fine. Yeah, I think you're I think you're 100 percent right. And I think that so nicely um, goes into what I wanted to talk about. Just kind of a personal experience of uh, I grew up outside of Los Angeles which now is a very affirming place, but I grew up in the era where it wasn't um, super affirming. And so I had no idea. I had no idea what diversity or inclusion or affirmation can, could look like. From there, I moved to Utah. Not a great example of what an affirming space looks like. Or diverse. Or diverse. From there, I moved to... Um, Colorado, and I would argue not Denver, Colorado, where you have lots of diversity of, of definitely a less diverse area, a, definitely a less diverse area of Colorado. And um, so when I went back to California to get my doctorate, um, I entrenched myself, I entrenched myself in two types of diversity. The first one being racial. Um, when I moved back, I went to school at Loma Linda. And I bought a condo in a city called Moreno Valley. And and you bought your condo in a spot that of like three minute radius around your condo had no cell phone service. <laughs> At least for me and my cell phone provider. Um, so you really were, you know, just roughing it out there. With your are no we service. sour about that still? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought about it a while that I realized, oh, I haven't moved past that. So what's interesting about Moreno Valley is it is, um, it's a curious city. There is an Air Force base out there. So you definitely have like a lot of um, military, um, white, not middle class. I mean, military people don't get paid a ton. Um, but then you also, what happened when Moreno Valley was built, and, and it's interesting, Moreno Valley was built as like a brand new city in the 90s, which is why when I was looking at like townhomes and, and on condos and stuff, and I was looking to buy, I was like, wow, this is a very nice, this is a very nice area. Like, like all this stuff is very new. It's very clean. And I had no idea the history of Moreno Valley. And what happened is, dun, dun, dun. bum, 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 in the... Mid 90s, there was a lot of migration of people from South and East Los Angeles as prices were going up, things were getting more expensive of the black community out towards uh, Moreno Valley. It was it was it was affordable. It was clean. It was had really good schools, had um, 
all the benefits that families that are wanted to remove their kids from dangerous areas um, wanted to take advantage of. And with less of a price tag. With less of a, with less of a price tag. It was, it was a great opportunity. Um, and by no means do I mean to say South and East Los Angeles were dangerous because of the, of people's race, their ethnicity. It's just, there was a lot of crime in the, in those areas. And so when I moved into this condo complex, um, I was exposed very quickly to the fact that I think I was probably the only uh, white person in the complex. Um, my next door neighbor was a guy named Elvis from Brazil. He was fantastic. And the rest of the community was mostly a diverse of Hispanic and black, but largely black. And I that, thought it was more Hispanic. Mm, my, my, my complex was largely black. Okay. And <clears throat> I was so grateful for that. I was so grateful for that. Every time I went to the store, I was surrounded by people of color because it was so different than what I'd experienced the previous uh, 15 years of my life. Growing up in La Habra, I had plenty of exposure to diversity, and I realized how much I missed that. I miss living in and amongst people of color who don't look like me, who don't talk like me, who don't sound like me. I missed that. So I was really grateful for that opportunity. And then... Um, uh, it did the thing where it stopped counting, but it still says recording. So I'm just going to keep going. Um, and then um, after my first year, it was time to get into like clinical clinical positions. And your first year of school, my first year of yeah grad grad school. And I chose a clinical position that put me on uh, reservations, Indian reservations. And I was really grateful for that because almost all the other placements were very white-centric patients, white-centric providers kind of places. And that was awesome. Again, I was exposed to people with a fundamentally different life experience than my own. And then um, I realized I needed to kind of learn more about the queer community. And so I created a placement. It wasn't offered um, I mean, it was a religious school in in, in San Bernardino. Um, so I created the placement at the Long Beach LGBT Center. And that gave me the opportunity to go work amongst the queer community. And what I realized, what I realized is exactly how sheltered I truly was. Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a big way. And I realized how much I didn't know. And I realized how much my naivete prevented me from becoming the person I wanted to be. Some of the stigma, some of the biases, some of the prejudices I had had to be undone. Now, the perfect example of this, uh, and it's one of the things, I think it just kind of exemplifies the um, lesson I learned, I guess, um, I remember one night I was working with a, with a group and there was a girl in the group who was clearly suicidal ish. Ish. <laughs> uh, it was my first time meeting this person. So I didn't know how severe things were or weren't. Um, and so I know in mental health, a lot of people talk about suicide a lot. Um, 
So people who don't tend to talk about suicide are the people who tend to actually do it, which is a whole nother issue. But I remember I was talking and I was talking to this girl. I was like, oh, I just don't feel like I can take it. And I was really scared to let her out of the room. I was really, I was genuinely worried. And so when I was talking with her, and, and this is in a group context, I said, well, if you ever get to that point where you feel like you're going to do it and you just can't go on, you could you can call 911 and the police will show up at your house. Classic example of privilege talking. Classic example of ignorance talking. Um, in that moment, I was reminded by her and every other person in the room, if you call the police, especially being a queer person, especially being a queer person of color, you are much more likely to be assaulted and killed than you are to be saved. And that's one of those lessons that just kind of resonated with me and stuck with me and just showed the level of ignorance I had. And that eye-opening experience is what caused me to say, um, there's a lot I don't know. And I think there's a lot of reason why people have a hard time figuring out what they don't know or going down that deep dive that we've done in, in, in our community is because the more you learn, the more you realize what an asshole you were beforehand. Is there anything you've maybe learned over the years where you're like, ah, shit, probably shouldn't have done that in the past or... I don't know. I mean, I, I try to come from a place of out the gate knowing that I don't know. <laughs> you know, like That's I think useful. I think I'm much more, for lack of a better word, humble than maybe you can be sometimes. This, this is this is true. This is true most of the time. Actually. Yeah, and so it's not that I've never oh, been. Oh, that was a quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm better than you in this way. Humble so brag. It's, it's not that I've never been in you know a learning situation, but. I have been in, you know, I mean, I started, I grew up in a diverse-ish area. Yeah. I mean, it definitely was not like white, like the area that we're in now. Um, You know, went to a school that had diversity, was in, you know, teacher education program, which really has a huge focus on diversity and accommodating and cultural competence. That's a good point. And even though, I mean, there is... I don't know what teacher education looks like now, but there was definitely a long way to go as far as like being more inclusive in cultural competence uh, that we were taught about. But it was always a thing that, you know, we were always aware of diversity. We were always aware of differences. We always, you know, whether it was, you know, ethnic and racial or like financial, socioeconomic, religious, um, sexuality is not so much a, a diversity topic that they talked about, yeah. you know, but, you know, disability, all of that. Um, I don't know. So I think I just kind of have more situations where I went into them feeling more cautious or like, I'm going to tread really carefully versus, you know, what you're experiencing where you're saying, Oh, I had this aha moment just because I think that so much of, you know, my launch into adulthood 
you know, particularly in college and being in education, has really taught me to kind of like just be aware. Yeah. And so whether I know something or not, everything was kind of a learning opportunity. And, you know, each family is different. Each student is different. Um, you know, and not to say that I know everything because I don't, but I definitely think that at a, maybe, you know, being in a career that was focused on diversity is what has made me, well, I'm also just a little more cautious in general to like make assumptions and things. <laughs> but I think maybe like being in that environment also helped to, you know, make me take a step back and say, okay, like, I don't know everything that's going on about this situation or this family or this culture. And, you know, I'm just going to try to do the best I can. How old were you when you came out? Like officially? Yeah. 25. Okay. So this is actually, you brought up something I'm really curious about. And I totally wasn't thinking about the education component, Mm -hmm. which is, which is why you're here. Um, for those of those who don't know, uh, Brittany has a background in education and, uh, you think they went through that whole story and did not put that piece together and they were a, a teacher and then they were a special ed administrator. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyways, uh, that, that, that tangent aside, <clears throat> some of it, I think about age gap, right? There's, there's about 11 or 12 year age gap for us, but in 11 or 12 years, post the years I went to high school, high schools weren't really all that much more affirming than they were um, when I was there. So I was in high school from 93 to 96, 92 to 96, something like that. Mm -hmm. And in the 10 years after that, 2002 to 2006, probably a little bit better, but nowhere where they're at today. No, nowhere near where they're at today. Oh no, there was... Absolutely no GSA on my school campus. What's GSA again? The Gay Straight Alliance, like a club where gay people and straight people mingle. <laughs> I mean, that's the way when when you look at literally the wording, that's what it implies. But it's meant to be a safe space for you know queer kids, but then also an op- uh, welcoming and open space for you know their straight het counterparts who want to be affirming or who are affirming so yeah there's definitely there's definitely more clubs and then a lot of places there's curriculum now that actually is is affirming and supportive curriculum not everywhere and it's definitely getting rolled back in a lot of parts of the country which is tragic so with that information though had you had access to that affirming environment that kids have now in half of the united states or <laughs> on United States. Um, do you think you would have come out sooner? Mm, I don't know. It's a toss up. It's kind of a toss up for me too. When I'm thinking about it, I was thinking about, well, and let me just tell you this story that I think is embarrassing. <laughs> okay. Ooh. Very embarrassing story about me. You my popcorn. Yeah. But I think this helps maybe with like some of the context of, you know, why I can't answer that question specifically, yes or no. Yeah. Um, so I had a gay aunt. And for the entirety of my life, I did not, you know, l- let me back up. For the entirety of my life, it's always been her, my aunt, and then this other person who she was with, also a woman. 
and they were always together. Like they, their relationship spanned longer than my entire life. Okay. Um, so I've only ever known them as like a pair, you know, really, but I didn't know what their relationship was, you know? And by the time I'm like preteen, maybe entering teenagehood, I'm like, Hmm, I'm wondering about this, right? Like, <laughs> like what, what is this? Is this what I think it is? But I didn't want to ask because if you ask that question, you know, in that time, early 2000s, particularly yeah. to someone who is older and she was like eight years older than my mom too. So she definitely was a lot older. I didn't want to offend anybody. Yeah. Okay. I like, I didn't know, but my family never talked about it outright. And then it wasn't until I came out that my mom was like, Oh, well, did you tell your aunt? And I was like, not yet. No. Why? And she goes, well, because she's gay. As if I was supposed to know. But, oh and again, it's not that I didn't have an inkling, but nobody confirmed it. Um, they didn't have a relationship, at least in front of me, that was very PDA-centric. Yeah. And so, I didn't have a lot to go on, you know, other than here's this person who is affixed to my aunt, and, you know, they do life together, but shit like they could have been like fucking laverne and shirley and just been best friends and you know it was all the same to me but it was just like there's that kind of air of mystery around it and i think that was just still so indicative of of the times and you know even with a school environment that maybe could have been more educational i'm not sure if it would have made you know much of a difference See, that's what I think about, too. And I think about my own childhood growing up, um, my own childhood growing up, that's redundant. Um, if I had gone to a school that was more inf inf affirming or told you, hey, these feelings you have, you're not alone in having them. You're, you're not weird. You're not, you know, problematic. In fact, lots of people will have these feelings or whatever. Um it wouldn't have changed the family dynamics at home. It wouldn't have changed the resentment I felt from my parents towards people who were different. Well, and I would say your family dynamics were much more overt and probably more negative yeah. than mine. Mine were just silent, kind of non-existent, <laughs> you know, we take the silence approach to condemnation. Yeah. No, I don't know. Your family didn't talk about things. Yes. That's what I'm getting at. Correct. So um, where are we going with this? What am, where am I going with this? What are we talking about? Um, things you don't know. Things you, things you don't know. And over the past, coming up on eight years, holy shit. Over the past eight years of seeing people, treating people, working with people. Um, I've seen at least a thousand different people, uh, in various states of mental health needs, personality disorders, um, queer gender related history, trauma. And I've got to tell you, it is a rare individual that craves correction. It's a very, um, it's a very atypical thing. And 
What's curious about this is I think about some of the religious people I've known over the years, and even the religious people I've known recently who consider themselves, oh, I want to serve humanity. I want to be good. Cool. Are you willing to hear about how something you're doing is hurting someone? Fuck no. And how normalized that is. And I'm not sure there's a way to address it. I'm not sure there's a way to fix it. All I can say is that I know I went down that rabbit hole and you come out the other side a better person. You come out the other side wanting to know. But I think, honestly, it's exposure. You know, like, think about parents who maybe were not supporting of their trans kids and then they have a trans kid or they know that they have a trans kid. That knowledge comes to light and they come around. You know, that person without that trans kid may have never come around. But all of a sudden when you have something that is personal to you or in your environment where you kind of have to address it and have to think about it and have to think about how you feel about it, you know, stuff that kind of really is in your space, then it's really hard to do that stuff. It's hard to do that work without that reason. And I mean, there's some people who, yeah, like they want to know, they want to understand. Like my dad, I think not to talk about my dad because he'll love it, but (laughs) I think he is the kind of person who is like, you know, I don't know about this thing. I'd I'd like to know some more about this thing. I'm going to like, I'm going to do some research. He's a big researcher. Right. Um, and that's that's him. That's his personality. It's a very specific way to kind of go about things. And again, like, do I think that, you know, he's looking at every like racial and cultural issue? No, like, no, he's, you know, where he is interested in and what he thinks about, you know, is based on like his brain and his environment and all of this stuff. Right. Yeah. Similar to, you know, things that you and I might research you're much more likely to want to go down politics and religion. And I'm definitely not that, you know, but, and some of that's like context, you know, you watch a lot of news. I don't, um, but your brain just likes that stuff better. So I think until you have a reason to have to think about some of these things in a different way that you think about them now, it's really hard to change your mind or to have a different opinion other than the one that you have. I think you're, I think you're right on exposure. I think that people who have a queer member of their family are much more likely to ask the questions. It doesn't necessarily make them more likely to get to an affirming result. Also, I think what is difficult Awareness and exposure is absolutely a good thing. I, I, I can't say that say that enough. So, I, the questions I'm raising now about that are less about um, less about the the impact of that and and, and the ramifications as they are about um, sometimes we lose context of severity when we're talking about a family member. Case in point. <clears throat> um, okay, good because I don't know where you're going. So. Um, I, I, I don't deny I have a lot of privilege, uh, in, in, in my life, um, financial privilege, cultural privilege. I, I am house secure. I am education secure. I'm, I'm very sheltered, uh, sheltered, wrong word, protected, isolated, protected, protected. 
Um, I know I can tell a cop to fuck off and not get shot. But don't do that. No, as a a rule, I'm going to try not to. Okay. Yeah. Um, And so my family that knows me knows, okay, here's here's a queer person. And they're doing fine. So I'm going to continue to vote Republican. I'm going to continue to vote for laws that deny access to health care for queer kids. Though, can I just put a pause on your spiel for a second? Yes. You don't. Are you who are you talking about in your family? I don't know. Extended family, general family. There's plenty of people in my family that still vote very Republican. Yes. And of those people, you don't, not that you have to, but you don't share the intricacies of your life to which they could connect some of those things as things that could affect you. So healthcare, you don't talk about any like, thing that could affect you with healthcare, with the exception of like, you know, me, because it's supposed to, but like, you don't go talk to your mom about your healthcare, your brother about your healthcare, right? You don't talk to your mom about the legality of whether or not you can get married. Those, those topics don't come up. But they don't come up because I'm in that isolated class. Do they, so wait, do they not come up because you, wait, why don't they come up? So if I struggled with access to health care. Right. I would be much... Oh, I hear your point. I hear your point. Uh, if I struggled with access to health care, I'd be much more like, hey, bro, hey, sis-in-law, hey, aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, here's why my life is hard, or here's some of the challenges I'm facing. Please stop voting to, you know, take away my access to health care. But even then, I think, I, you know, like, you point. and I have talked about oh, we want to get married. Um, And there's definitely this pressure to kind of get married before things go south with the hope that like that will somehow solidify our marriage or, you know, things that come with it. And at no time, I think, at least that I know of, have I heard you express, you know, any of that to various members of your family. I I think you're exactly... And that's the thing that actually does... And could affect you. I think you're 100% right. And, th- and, you know, I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about the shadow docket. The shadow docket is a list of priorities that the Supreme Court wants uh, now that they have a conservative majority. And Oberfeld and national recognition of same-sex marriage is definitely on their list to undo. That's, and that's, that's, that is very real to us. I mean, regardless of privilege and access, that's... Yeah, there are things that affect you, but I think your the way you have contact with your family as an adult, because adults, we don't share as much with our parents or with our siblings yeah. that we would, you know, if we were kids or if we needed their support, like, they're adjacent to our lives, right? You're more likely to share information with me than you are you know, other members of your family. And that's just kind of how it is. But you, you know, just because you are queer and you are in the family doesn't mean that they are connected to you in the same way 
that a mom who has a 12 year old is. It's a very, very different level of connectedness. And that 12 year old is in that mom's bubble significantly more than you are in your mom's bubble as an adult. You're, you're, you're exactly right. I know. And I guess one of the things that, that, that I'm not sure what to do with, and I'm not sure there's an answer for right now, and I'm not sure it matters. And this is one of those things where I don't want to assume, um, I don't want to assume, even though part of my head definitely believes it, um, that right-wing Republicans want to pass laws that harm children. I don't, I don't, I don't want to believe that. I don't want to assume that. And I just don't think they understand the severity or the repercussions of their actions when they vote for laws to take away access to healthcare. When Christians and, and various, various religions, uh, you know, they tell you they love you, but you're also not welcome in their facilities or you're also not welcome uh, in their services or you're denied access to the same people, same rights and blessings. You can't and things. serve in the same way. Right, right, exactly. They don't understand that as discrimination or if they do, they see it as appropriate discrimination and they don't understand the repercussions of that is complex trauma, suicidality, mental health issues. And if they do, they blame you for having suicidality or mental health issues because you weren't a good Christian or religious person in the first place. Okay. Blame the victim is still very much the mantra. But they don't they don't think that way. They don't understand the repercussions of what they're doing in the name of Well, and again, you're you're talking about an organization. And so I think the further you get away, so we're talking about, okay, maybe exposure helps. Yeah. Okay, so you've got family exposure, you've got friend exposure, you've got, you know, neighbors, school, workplace, you've Community got that exposure. exposure. Yeah. Um, obviously, family is going to be more of the impactful type of exposure. But as that circle of exposure kind of gets bigger, or maybe as you get like higher up this chain of, um, it's not a chain and it's not necessarily a hierarchy, but think like individual, right, is on level one. Then you've got like a group, your neighborhood, you know, your school that's level two, uh, a, a corporation, you know, level three or four, a politician level six or seven. So the higher up you get, the further away you get from that like family. Yeah. And so you hear about the family it's not in your circle anymore. And it's so far out of your circle, you know, because you're either working as part of a large group or because you're working for a political party or because you're working within certain constraints that you can't connect to that until something again pops into your individual bubble. You know, what I was thinking about with that is... Again, I'm, I'm staying out of politics this, ep this episode, but what I wonder is a lot of people's exposure is going to be reduced by some of the changes. You can't say gay in a school. All right. Well, the school community is no, no longer a place where you get exposure to difference. Mm -hmm. What are the ramifications of that long term? Five years, 10 years, 20 years. Like what's the? I can't even imagine what that must be. I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting that 
here we are 2023, you know, three years after the pandemic started and we're still in, we're seeing in kids ramifications still Yeah, of that time period. And that was obviously a very severe, you know, I, I period of time, which I don't think can necessarily be compared to like, oh, they didn't talk about this in school, <clears throat> yeah. but the, we are going to be seeing ramifications of that. For a decade, at least, if not longer term. Yeah, at least for all of the kids who were kids, you know, during COVID, like, we'll see that. Yeah. And so I think, you know, who knows what the ramifications might be, or maybe the ramifications are only going to hit a certain group of people, you know? kids who went to school from this year to this year because after this year something changed because again like policies are always changing best practices are always changing especially in education like that's always changing i wonder if this is actually going to be an advantage to the youth who had um who didn't believe in covid um some of the maga people out there some of the anti-vaxxers kids that grew up in progressive households um Democrat households, center left, hell, even center right households. They were told this shit's real. This shit's serious. This shit's scary. Be afraid. Where some of the kids on the far right were like, fuck it. It's fake. It's not even real. I wonder if they are going to have a healthier mental health outcome because of that. Maybe. I think the difference, though, between COVID and going back to like your original question is if you were during COVID to Google COVID, you'd get mixed. You would have to really know like what kind of source you were looking at yeah. as far as the information you were getting. And information was kind of changing all the time. Yeah. Kids these days, the advantage that they have that we didn't is they have the internet at their fingertips, yeah. which means that they have community and information also at their fingertips. Yeah. And unlike with COVID, you Google stuff and you're actually going to find may not be the most accurate, but you'll be able to find something that affirms who you are. Yeah. And I think that, you know, so maybe schools aren't going to talk about it, but kids these days are so Internet dependent, so phone dependent, so social media dependent, you know, that I think that they're still going to get that elsewhere. I think that I and. We're, co- we're coming up on time, so I, but I think that's a great maybe conversation for the next podcast of what community looks like now versus what it looked like in your generation, my generation, my parents' generation, and kind of the pros and cons of that. I mean, when you have access to information at your fingertips, you have access to misinformation at your fingertips. And that's got to be tricky and that's got to be scary. And... We can talk a little bit more about like polarization and groupthink and and some of the ways that we radicalize in any direction um, people through online social communities. Uh, and with that, uh, this is the we're coming up on the end of the episode. Any parting wisdom, Brittany? Nope. I also have no parting wisdom. So uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye.